New Year's Eve. However busy you are, you should still reserve one evening a year for thinking about your double. The man who took the curve on Conway Road too fast, given the icy patches that night, but no faster than you did. The man whose car, when it slid through the shoulder, happened to strike a girl walking alone from a neighbor's party to her parents' farm, while your car struck nothing more notable than a snowbank. One evening for recalling how soon you transformed your accident into a comic tale, told first at a body shop, for comparing that hour of pleasure with his hour of pain at the house of the stricken parents and his many long afternoons at the Lutheran graveyard. If nobody blames you for assuming your luck has something to do with your character, don't blame him for assuming that his misfortune is somehow deserved, that justice would be undone if his extra grief was balanced later by a portion of extra joy. Lucky you, whose personal faith has widened to include an angel assigned to protect you from the usual outcomes of heedless moments. But this evening, consider the angel he lives with, the stern enforcer who drives the sinners out of the garden with a flaming sword and locks the gates. This World is Not Conclusion by Emily Dickinson. This world is not conclusion. A species stands beyond, invisible as music, but positive as sound. It beckons and it baffles. Philosophy, don't know. And though a riddle and the last, sagacity must go. To guess it, puzzle scholars. To gain it, men have borne contempt of generations and crucifixion shown. Faith slips and laughs and rallies, blushes if any see, plucks at a twig of evidence and asks a vein the way. Much, much gesture from the pulpit Strong hallelujahs roll. Narcotics cannot still the tooth that nibbles the soul. I don't understand why this is happening to me. Why did my cancer come back? I've tried to live a good life. I'm not perfect, but I've done pretty well. My job is helping kids who have been abused, and I work hard at it. I'm good to my husband and my kids, and the cancer came back. Alice told me this in a dark hospital room, lit only by the TV playing Wheel of Fortune. Her cancer had metastasized to her brain and her bones, and she was told earlier that day that she would likely die very soon. She was only 56 years old. 
I just don't understand, she continued. I just don't understand how God could let this happen to me. If God is all-powerful, like they told me in my Lutheran church, why hasn't God stopped the cancer? If God is a loving father, why do I have cancer? I do everything I can to help my kids. Why won't God parent me like that? If God is fair, why do I have cancer again? Shouldn't it be someone else's turn? Why me? Why is my family suffering? She then turned to me expectantly. I was her chaplain. I was the person in that hospital who was supposed to have answers to questions like this, questions about God, suffering, and meaning. What would you have said to Alice in that moment? How do you answer, why me, when it springs to your lips or is voiced by those around you? These questions and our struggles to answer them are at the heart of what it means to be religious. While we we may feel alone when we ask them, we are united with our brothers and sisters and cousins who've been asking these questions for millennia. Alice's questions are fundamentally about what kind of universe we live in. How do we make sense of this beckoning and baffling world? Is the universe fair? Does everything happen for a reason? Is there a cause behind every effect? Is the universe random and indifferent, governed by chance and luck? Historian Jennifer Michael Hecht asserts that these questions show us a rupture in meaning in our world. In her book, Doubt a History, she writes, Great believers and great doubters are both awake to the fact that we live between two divergent realities. On one side, there's the world in our heads and our lives, so long as we are not contradicted by death and disaster. And that is the world of reason and plans, love and purpose. On the other side, there is the world beyond our human life, an equally real world in which there is no sign of caring or value, planning or judgment, love or joy. We live in a meaning rupture because we are human and the universe is not. She continues, Great doubters, like great believers, have been people occupied with this problem, trying to figure out whether the universe actually has a hidden version of humanness or whether humanness is the error and people would be better off weaning themselves from their sense of narrative, justice, and love thereby solving the schism by becoming more like the universe in which they are stuck. Cosmology can be stunning in this context. It is meaningful to get to your wedding on time, to do well in the marathon for which you have been training, to not spill coffee on your favorite shirt. But if we take a few steps back from the planet Earth and our tiny moment in history, we see a very different picture. The earth is a ball of water and dirt, swarming with creatures, living and dying, passing in and out of existence, shifting around the continents. A few steps even further back, and we see planets coming into into being, stars being born and dying, 
galaxies swarming in clusters across billions of years. From this perspective, the importance of a favorite shirt, a finish in the next marathon, and even whether you show up at your wedding, all of this begins to seem inconsequential. Concentrating on the macro picture of reality is, is enough to make you sit down on a park bench and never get up again. <laughs> and yet, the world is not full of people sitting on park benches refusing to get up. We are resilient. Somehow, we make sense of the rupture between the world we live in most of the time that seems filled with reason and purpose and the randomness of death and disaster that we cannot make sense of. Or we at least make peace with it enough to get through the day. One way of explaining this meaning rupture comes to us from the religions of India, Hinduism, Buddhism, Sikhism, and Jainism. These faiths have notions of karma. At its core, karma is the assertion that we live in a moral universe, a human universe. Everything happens for a reason. There is no chance, there is no good luck or bad luck. What comes around goes around and we reap what we sow. Everything that happens in our lives is a result of previous actions. So what would this mean for Alice, the woman with recurrent cancer? Why is she dying so young and so painfully? Perhaps believers in karma could have traced her cancer to previous actions in this life. Perhaps Alice did something terrible enough to merit cancer and early death, though I can't really imagine what that would be. Some Believers in these traditions would assert that Alice's suffering is because of actions in a previous life. Perhaps her cancer and death restore cosmic balance. She has worked through her karma, the debt she incurred, and is ready for a better incarnation. Ideas of cause, karma and cause and effect are not only in Indian religions. Many who do not follow those wisdom traditions hold them, hold them too, at least informally. If we find ourselves saying, he really got what was coming to him, or we are claiming that the universe is moral. Karma is a satisfying answer to why me for some people. It works for many of the world's Hindus, Buddhists, Jains, and Sikhs, but it also has serious shortcomings. When taken to its extreme, a belief in karma, a belief that leaves no room for chance, randomness, and luck, can get very close to blaming the victim. If only Alice had lived differently in this life or a previous one, she would not be suffering now. Karma is used not only to explain illness. For example, some, not all people who believe in karma, believe that people are poor for a reason. They would assert that poverty is punishment, evidence of misdeeds in this life or a previous one. And while blaming people for their own poverty is not unknown in this country, in places where the religions of India are prevalent, it takes on a different form. Some assert that the, if the rule of karma is true, then letting people remain in dire poverty is a generous act, as it allows those who are poor to work through their karma, restore balance, and prepare themselves for a better reincarnation.
Karma is a powerful idea, an idea that is rooted in the reality that we are all interconnected. But it was not the answer I gave to Alice that night. The Judeo-Christian religious tradition answers why me in a different way. The Hebrew Bible's book of Job is an exploration of the suffering of good people. The story of the good man who loses nearly everything and struggles to understand why is one of the oldest stories that humanity tells. Versions of this story were told among the ancient Egyptians and Mesopotamians, and then those who crafted the Hebrew scriptures borrowed elements from those stories. In the version of the story in the Hebrew scriptures, Job, a good man, loses his wealth, his children, and his health. He asks, why me? The story's audience knows the cause for Job's suffering. At Satan's prompting, God decides to take away Job's wealth and wellness to see if he was only a good man because he had a good life. But Job, his wife, and his friends don't know that. So they do what we all do when faced with suffering. They try to make sense of it. Job's friends insist that Job must be guilty of something, somehow, some way. They want the universe to be fair and insist that Job must deserve his losses. Job claims his innocence. At the end of the story, after many arguments, God speaks to Job out of a whirlwind. God doesn't explain the bet with Satan. God says, I am the creator and you are not. You cannot understand how and why I do what I do. Then God gives Job wealth, health, and ten new children. To many people, me included, God's answer to Job is profoundly unsatisfying. God sidesteps the issue. And in Alice's room that night, I didn't want to sidestep the issue. That night, I didn't invoke any of the world's great wisdom traditions. I didn't answer her questions with a discussion on karma or Job. I told Alice that I didn't have satisfying answers to her questions, that I joined her in her questions and understood her anger. I told her I wished I had some magic words that would somehow make what was happening to her and her family make sense. I told her that I believe that her questions are impossible to fully answer in a satisfying way. That doesn't mean that we didn't try in that dark hospital room. That doesn't mean that all of us that doesn't mean that all of us don't keep trying to make sense of the meaning rupture in our world. The tentative answer that I gave her that night is from the humanist tradition. I echoed the words of essayist David Rakoff, who died in 2012, also from recurrent cancer, and also too young. He was 47. And in Half Empty, the last book published in his lifetime, written when he knew that death was near, he writes, It is the belief in the extra soothing power of the universe that gets me, since as best as I can determine, the universe cares not one jot for you or me. It really doesn't. As the writer Melissa Bank points out, the only proper response to a tearful why me is sadly, why not you?
that can be a cold and lonely reality with which to contend, and one to which every one of us, even the most vinegar-soaked pessimist, is naturally resistant. We all spend our lives rejecting this truth, and consciously or not, and treating the universe with its vast stretches of deep space, dark matter, and uncharted, immeasurable distances to somehow align itself in sheer admiration of our fervor and gumption, to rain down precisely that which it is we wish for. And the universe will say nothing. Rakoff and Bank answer, why me with why not? This is the answer I shared with Alice that day. This is the answer that is most true for me. Since we Unitarian Universalists are not bound together by shared belief, I expect and I hope that this is not the truest answer for all of you. And I would love to hear how you answer the questions, why me? Why am I suffering? I wish that why not wasn't my best answer to why me. I wish I could have confidently told Alice that there is some deeper meaning behind her cancer. Some truth that given enough insight or time or meditation she could discover. But that is not the truth that I know or the world that I see. The truth that I know is that why not is the truest answer to why me. Everything doesn't happen for a reason. What we reap is not what we sow. Illness afflicts the best and the worst of us. And at some point, even though the answers still won't come, asking why me ceases to serve us. After perhaps raging against the indifference of the universe for quite a while, a shift happens. The most important question ceases to be why me and becomes now what? How do I want to live with the reality I face? Why me is in some way a plea to be protected from the realities of life. Human life is marked by suffering. None of us are exempt from pain. There is nothing that we can do from es- to escape it. True, pain, comes, pain and suffering come in different forms and different magnitudes, but they inevitably come. As Wesley, a character in The Princess Bride, tells his beloved, Life is pain, princess, and everyone and anyone who says differently is selling something. Too often, we are told, like Job is, that it is not our place to ask these important questions. But it is our place to ask the hard questions, the ones we might not know the answer to, the ones we might never be able to answer. These are the questions that unite us as people. Our answers are different, but our questions are the same. And so what are we left with? I wish I had a beautiful end to this sermon, that I could tell you that Alice actually made a full recovery or found answers, or at least had made peace with all of her questions before she died. A few days after we spoke, Alice was discharged from the hospital into hospice care. A week after that, I saw her obituary in the newspaper. As far as I know, her questions were not answered. She died with them still on her lips. 
I ache for this story to be different. But I also know that a true story holds more wisdom than a beautiful fiction. To be religious is to wrestle with this baffling, beckoning world as it is and find what meaning we can, even if it is not the meaning that we want. Alice's questions, like the similar questions that we ask in moments of despair and suffering, are brave and honest, and in their own particular way, beautiful. They hold a hard-earned beauty, a truth and resilience that is polished and refined by loss and by tears. So may we keep asking and living the questions. May we keep searching for answers and traditions in our communities and in our own hearts. And may we find beauty and meaning and truth along the way. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.